Our very brief reading from James, telling us about the Father of light who sent forth Jesus Christ, the good and perfect gift, to bring us forth by faith alone as firstfruits out of this dying and chaotic age. It says that he did this by the word of truth. By the word of truth. By his speaking. Our God is one who talks. When he talks, what he says happens. The heavens and the earth were made by the speaking of his voice. The sending of Jesus from the very beginning through the curse that was given to Adam, Eve, and the serpents. The sending of Jesus was by his word. And so that word, as John tells us, became flesh, dwelt among us. They saw his glory. And then when he ascended into heaven to reign as he is right now at the right hand of the Father, he decided to reign in two ways. One, by letting the devil continue to do what he wants with the nations of this age, to deceive them, that by the power of the sword, they would fight against each other and struggle for power, all of them like great beasts collapsing against each other through the chaotic seas of time. Make no mistake, he's in charge of all of that. He is reigning through all of that. But that's his alien work. His proper work is the second way he reigns. And that is through the word that he has sent with his church. Church is a funny word. It just means to gather. Uh, He's gathering us. How? With very simple words. With the words of the Bible. With the words of the scriptures. With simple phrases like the creed. With an even more simple phrase like, are you ready? He is risen. Alleluia. And so that is why in times such as we live, This year especially, I have devoted our sermon time to teaching us to read this word, to read the Bible together. And this week, James, the very brother of our Lord, we spent a lot of time on him a year ago when we remembered his day. We're going to look at his book uh, in brevity. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this service on the part that gives everybody so much trouble. Chapter 2, is justification by grace or is justification by works? And of course, during the era of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church wanted to point to one verse in James and say everything Paul wrote about it doesn't count now. We'll talk about that a little bit in the next service. And if you want to catch up with that, you can go to YouTube later today or this week, search for my name, and you can find your way to How to Read the Bible, James Part 2. You can also always listen to these sermons if you do podcasts, Spotify iTunes. Just look for Saved, the podcast Saved, and you can find the rest of that there. But for today, rather than get into the debate that's been going on for 500 years, which frankly, if you're still debating whether or not Jesus really is our Savior, I think, I think it's time just to let you be and leave you alone. Yeah, Let's focus instead on what James tells us that's so very obvious and valuable, how he is an encourager how he believes that this word of light that comes down from above is there to wake us up and to make us stand and to help us walk through the darkness with eyes opened by, again, the revelation, the epiphany of who the mighty God is. So if you have the Pew Bible in front of you or you'd be willing to grab it, James begins on page 1011. If you have your own Bible, of course, that's excellent. I love it when you do that. Bring your Bible, highlight it, take some notes beside it. I challenged many of you at the start of the year, take some notes every week this year and see if you ever stop. It'll change the way you believe. It'll change the way that you listen. 
But again, just open the Bible and follow along at least. Page 1011, the book of James. We're going to start by looking at chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. I'm going to read it here. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Notice the emphasis on faith. That's the very thing James wants us to have. And he says, if you don't have any, if you don't feel like you have enough, ask Jesus for it. That's what it means. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it generously. Jesus says it this way. God will always give generously of his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And note it says without reproach. That means no matter how sinful you are, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you carry in your flesh that continues to plague you, without reproach, he will give you the spirit that teaches you to cry out to the almighty God as your father. Not as a stern judge far away, not as some king who looks at you with a skeptical eye, not as someone who is going to test you to see whether you're good enough, but as a father who wants to give you Wisdom, wisdom to see clearly. Now, we did this at the start of the year and we were looking at the book of Proverbs, but I want to do it again. I'm going to read verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And I'm going to tell you, repeat after me. Jesus Christ, give me wisdom. Do it. And do it one more time, just in case you were worried about it. This time, really mean it. Jesus Christ, give me wisdom. And now know he's going to. Okay, that's what it means to ask without doubting. It doesn't mean you're never going to doubt again. It means know who he is. Know that he's going to. He promises this. It will always be fulfilled. And even if you find that you run into challenges and trials and chastening discipline, know that is him giving you wisdom to see that this life isn't all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, Pleasure Island sinks into the sea and it leaves a bunch of donkeys drowning. That's where we are. Yeah. So again, go back to verse 3 then. Excuse me, verse 2, where he starts out the whole book. Consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. That's tough. That's hard to do. To be excited about when it didn't go the way you wanted it to go. To be excited about what doesn't seem good to you. So how do you do that? How do you find joy in the suffering? Well, first, you have to know that this is testing your faith, not to see if it's there, but to make it grow. Yeah, This is watering your faith to produce steadfastness in you. I can say very, very clearly that the big reason we lose out on joy in the midst of suffering is because usually the first thing we want to do is stop the suffering. We either think, oh, it was better then, Or we think, oh, it'll be better in the future. And just like that, we're not present at all. We're living in a dream. 
We're trying to be somewhere other than where we are. And you're never going to have joy when you're trying to be somewhere other than you are. You're going to be discontent. Yeah? Joy is to recognize that even the suffering is from Jesus. That this moment is the one he gave you right now. That for such a time as this, he placed you on this earth in order to, if nothing else, remember that he's saving you from this earth. That is joy. Now, it doesn't feel like happiness, yeah? It's a little more like a comforting thought. It's a little more like certainty. It's a little more like steadfastness, again. And that's what it means, then, to have the full effect, to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It doesn't mean you're going to have your barns full. It doesn't mean you're going to live to be 120 and still be able to do 30 push-ups every day. What it means is that no matter what you face, you're going to know that this life is a passing dream walking through a desert toward a river, Jordan, which you will cross that death into a promised land flowing with more than milk and honey, flowing with innocence and righteousness and blessedness where every tear is wiped away from your eye. This will make you believing this, knowing this, being able to understand, yeah, this world's going to pass away. But I'm never going to pass away because Jesus will never pass away. This will make you not like a wave of the sea pushed about by every teaching that comes through the pipe. Why do these devices and the television have so much control over us? It's because their many, many teachings keep pushing us. And the more that we hear them, the more we just believe them. If we never talk about them, if we never confront them with other truth, then eventually they do change us. They change us. They change us quickly. How fast has the sexual revolution changed the way we think about homosexuality and the so-called trans movement as a society? Less than 20 years. When Barack Obama went into the White House, he was saying homosexuality is something that is not part of marriage. By the time he was done, there's rainbow flags everywhere. How did that happen? It isn't just that it happened. It's that the noise is so loud that the whole group, the herd, is moving with the noise. So you need wisdom, that is the ability to turn some of that noise off. You got to turn some of that noise off. And then you got to replace that noise with the wisdom of the scriptures. You got to replace that noise with the true words of what God really says. Otherwise, you will be double-minded. You will be questioning, did God really say? But to the one who has asked for wisdom and knows where to get it, to know that the scriptures are opened for you in Jesus Christ to be your, your bread and your butter and your bastion and your fortress. Well, again, this is to be one who's got the lighthouse on the rock and the storm can come and blow and it's not going to move that lighthouse. All right, so let's look at verses 19 through 21, same chapter, top of the next uh, column, if you're in the Pew Bible, where he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All right, so of course, to be slow to speak and quick to listen It's just good advice in general. If you would like to have less conflict in your life with people around you, be quick to hear what they say. Try to understand what they mean. Give some credence to who they are. And then don't be so fast to respond that you're ready to go with an answer right away. 
ponder your response, especially, especially when you don't like what they said, especially when your emotions are, are flaring and angry, right? That's good advice, but that's not really his point. That's not. Notice how it ends. Why are you to be quick to listen to? What are you to be quick to listen to? The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Yeah. The idea of silencing the tongue, which James will talk about at length in chapter 3, is not just so we would walk around and say nothing. It's so that when we speak, we would speak like those who are driving a ship toward a blessed country, who know how to call out, you know, turn to starboard, put up the, the mats, whatever. We know how to call out what needs to be done because we have our minds and voices trained by the one who speaks from eternity to us. Yes? So again, to slow yourself down in order to turn some time to the word of God is essential to producing the righteousness of God in you. That is, to creating the faith that is willing to say no to the lies when they come at you. And therefore, to be able to put away filthy talk, rampant wickedness, and all these kinds of things. All right. So, we're going to go ahead, and for the sake of time this morning, we're going to jump way ahead. I said we're going to jump over that argument about faith and works in chapter 2. We'll touch on that again on the later sermon. But we're going to jump way ahead to chapter 4, verse 6. This will be on the top of page 1013, where... Coming out of this conversation about how are you saved? Is it by what you do? Is it by what you believe? And James' real point in all of this is you can't separate what you do from what you believe. You can't separate it. If you say, I don't believe in murder, and you kill people, you believe in murder, no matter what you said. Yeah? A two-faced hypocrite is a two-faced hypocrite. Don't be a two-faced hypocrite. But how are you saved? Is it by what you do? That's not what he says here. Chapter 4, verse 6 again. But he, this is God, gives more grace. He gives more grace. Coming out of the talk about don't be a hypocrite, put your faith where your hands are, put your mouth where your faith is, and remember, it's all under grace. And the God who made you gives more grace. The reason Jesus died is not because you can save yourself, but because you're sick. And the antidote which the good physician brings is more grace. Verse 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word submission is not a popular word. Whether we're talking about the role of a wife to her husband in marriage, according to multiple passages of scripture, or whether we're talking about the duty of the Christian man to his Lord and King Jesus Christ 
is not a word you hear spoken of a lot. And we Lutherans have a, a particular kind of uneasy feeling about the word submission. And that's because there are many out there in more evangelical American Christianity who teach that everything about Christianity is whether or not you've submitted enough. And so if you're not having the experience of a victorious life and lots of joy all the time, well then, you just need to submit your heart to God more. And if you'll submit more, then you'll have all of his greatness. And so because that's it's such a lie, we tend to not even talk about submission at all. This is the big Lutheran problem is whenever there's a lie, lest we be heard saying it, we don't talk. <laughs> uh, and as a result, we give up too much. Because what we are to do as Christians is to submit ourselves. That's what the grace is for. So that verse 7, we may submit yourselves therefore to God, resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. You want to put this into practice this week? Again, pick up your Bible and read it at a time you normally don't. You'll find very quickly the devil in your life. He'll show up. He'll show up and you'll be like, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to do that right now. I got I to go do this. I got to go do this. I don't got time for one verse. Huh? Submit yourself to God and see if that devil doesn't flee. Tell yourself, it's not up to what my heart wants. It's not up to what I feel like right now. This is my duty to my king to at least hear that he still loves me. Open it up and see if after one verse you don't read two. Because the devil will have fled from you and you'll be hungry. You'll be hungry for more. Yeah? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What that means is, if you think you're going to fix your life, if you think you're going to control this age, if you think you're going to put it in such a place that nothing's ever going to harm you or take from you, whatever you think you're protecting, God's going to destroy it. I'm kind of convinced that much of what's going on in various institutions right now, whether or not that is the highest court of the land, or whether or not that is various Lutheran schools, such as the one that we lost, but think also of our Lutheran colleges in the Missouri Synod, almost all of which are teetering like toppled towers ready to fall, or whether that is any other thing out there that the modern world has said, it'll never fall. It's here forever. Part of the reason I think they're all having so much trouble is because we said that, because we think that. We've taken things that are not essential to life and not essential to the church, and we've called them essential. That's the definition of idolatry. And because Jesus loves us, he's pushing the idols over. So that we'll, we, wait a minute, my idol doesn't work. God help. Oh, and now, now you're praying to the right guy. Now you're seeing the essential things. What is the institution that will outlast every institution? Remember, that's what we call this thing, the Lord's Supper. The New Testament in his blood, it is made famous to us by his words of institution. How have we done so well as a congregation through these last couple of years while so many others are seeing complete losses of their numbers? It's because we've never given up our institution. We've never forgotten what the essential thing is. We believe that Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, for us to gather around, to assemble before, and to feast upon as the implanted word within us is sufficient to defeat everything in this age, even if through gathering together, we somehow were all to end up in the grave. You know, far worse things have happened in history than Christians coming together and spreading a virus to each other. 
Christians have come together in their churches and had the church burned down with them inside of it. That's far worse. And you know what? Those Christians are going to rise from the dead glorious and joyful because they outlasted the present age. And so will you. So will we. I'm not saying this to condemn all the other churches. I'm saying this so that when you speak to other Christians, you encourage them. Go back to church. Get back into the Bible. Stand up and believe that you're not here to live forever. You're here to know that when you die, you're going to die well. Because you're going to face it. Not running away. But standing firm in the confidence is not the end of you. You don't just have some karma to bring you back as a butterfly or a potato. You have a risen king, the firstborn from the dead, of which you are the firstfruits of his new generation by faith right now. And that's just the beginning, just the deposit. All right, so let's jump to chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, where he says then, because again, this is a present age of suffering. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, right? The, the, the task of the church I'm going to tangent a touch here. The last hundred years, we really got off on an idol called mission. And we came to believe the task of the church was to, in mission, make more Christians. And we came to believe that that was not only something we were supposed to do, but that we could do it. And that if it wasn't happening, it was up to us to figure out how to do it better. All that's happened is fewer and fewer people have actually believed. Because the mission of the church is not to go and convince people to become Christians. Your mission is to remain Christians while the world tries to convince you not to be. And you can believe that while you're doing that, more people will become Christians. Many became Christians in the early church because the early Christians were being killed. They were being taken into the Colosseum and put on pillars, poles, not crucified, but put up on poles where they were then lit on fire to be torches for the light, for the fights. Or they were thrown to lions or various things. And the word that comes down to us from the Roman pagans themselves that was whispered among them as they watched, the reason they found it so amazing was, see how they die? See how they die. Because they didn't die like everyone else, running and screaming and trying to hide. They died like Stephen with their heads held high, forgiving their captors and believing there was more to come. And you better believe that as Christianity continued to spread, and no matter how much they tried to kill them, more became Christians. It had everything to do with this. With their belief that our task is patient endurance and confidence in the face of suffering, knowing that our Lord is going to come. Now, the rest of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now that's not the 11th commandment. It's actually just the 8th commandment. You know, speak the truth. Don't speak more than you can know. But again, what's he already convinced us we know? What's he convinced us that we can say with certainty? Christ is risen. Alleluia. And here's another classic cry of the church. Christ has come. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's see if we can add this one. I'm going to say the first two. You say Christ will come again. Christ has come. Christ is risen. That is the certainty with which you can buttress your patience as the kind of wisdom that sees the world around you clearly, knowing it for the filthy, worn-out, bloody rag that it is, beautiful as it still can be, a present gift to be received today, but not tomorrow. Tomorrow Christ comes. Tomorrow is the end of the world. Tomorrow is in God's hands and has enough trouble for itself. And with that confidence that God, who knows that trouble, will provide for you tomorrow, you can stand today with your head held high and face the people who are near you, whether they be your enemy or your friend. Let's close here by looking at the end of the book, chapter 19 and 20. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth, notice his emphasis on what we believe, and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Is it your job to save people? No. It's your job to remember you are saved, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. For this is your joy. This is your hope. This is your certainty. And then as you devote yourself to this word as your food, as your daily bread, you believe that it will come out of your mouth. That your yes will be yes, your no will be no. You will be people of integrity set apart from the present age, like ones built on a rock, knowing your house is going to stand, like trees by streams of water, always ready to confess, indeed, Christ has come. Christ is come. Christ is risen. Very good. And the multitude of our sins are covered by his blood. And indeed, may more hear this and believe this among us. But indeed, may we continue to hold fast in this beautiful ship, driving toward that great and final day. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh Uh-oh.